Section 2 of An Editor's Tales by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Turkish Bath Continued It might be that, after all, we should gain much by the singular mode of introduction which the man had adopted. He was certainly clever, and if he could write as well as he could talk, his services might be of value. Punctually at the hour named he was announced, and we did not now for one moment think of declining the interview. Mr. Malloy had so far succeeded in his stratagem that we could not now resort to the certainly not unusual practice of declaring ourselves to be too closely engaged to see anyone, and of sending him word that he should confide to writing whatever he might have to say to us. It had, too, occurred to us that as Mr. Malloy had paid his three shillings and sixpence for the Turkish bath, he would not prove to be one of that class of visitors whose appeals to tender-hearted editors are so peculiarly painful. I am willing to work day and night for my wife and children, and if you will use this short paper in your next number, it will save us from starvation for a month. Yes, sir, from starvation." Who is to resist such an appeal as that, or to resent it? But the editor knows that he is bound in honesty to resist it altogether, so to steel himself against it that it shall have no effect upon him, at least as regards the magazine which is in his hands. And yet if the short thing be only decently written, if it be not absurdly bad, what harm will its publication do to anyone? if the waste, let us call it waste, of half a dozen pages will save a family from hunger for a month, will they not be well wasted? But yet again such tenderness is absolutely incompatible with common honesty, and equally so with common prudence. We think that our readers will see the difficulty and understand how an editor may wish to avoid those interviews with tattered gloves but my friend, Mr. Michael Molloy, had had three and sixpence to spend on a Turkish bath, had had money wherewith to buy, certainly, the very vilest of cigars. We thought of all this as Mr. Michael Molloy was ushered into our room. The first thing we saw was the tattered glove, and then we immediately recognized the stout middle-aged gentleman whom we had seen on the other side of German Street as we entered the bathing establishment. It had never before occurred to us that the two persons were the same. Not though the impression made by the poverty-stricken appearance of the man in the street had remained distinct upon our mind. The features of the gentleman we had hardly even yet seen at all. Nevertheless we had known and distinctly recognized his outward gait and mien, both with and without his clothes. One tattered glove he now wore, and the other he carried in his gloved hand. As we saw this, we were aware at once that all our preconception had been wrong, that that too common appeal would be made, and that we must resist it as best we might. There was still a certain jauntiness in his air as he addressed us. I hope then, said he, as we shook hands with him, you'll not take amiss the little ruse by which we caught you. It was a ruse then, Mr. Malloy? Divil a doubt of that, Mr. Editor. 
but you are coming to the Turkish bath independently of our visit there. Sorrow a bath I'd have come to at all, only I saw you go into the place. I just three and ninepence in my pocket, and says I to myself, Mick me boy, it's a good investment. There was three and sixpence for them savages to rub me down, and threepence for the two cheroots from the little shop round the corner. I wish they'd been better for your sake. It had been a plant from beginning to end, and the toe Kalon and the half-dozen words from Horace had all been parts of Mr. Molloy's little game, and how well he had played it. The outward trappings of the man, as we now saw them, were poor and mean, and he was mean-looking, too, because of his trappings. But there had been nothing mean about him as he strutted along with a blue-checked towel round his body. How well the fellow had understood it all, and had known his own capacity. "'And now that you are here, Mr. Molloy, what can we do for you?' we said, with as pleasant a smile as we were able to assume. Of course we knew what was to follow. Out came the roll of paper of which we had already seen the end projecting from his breast pocket, and we were assured that we should find the contents of it exactly the thing for our magazine. There is no longer any diffidence in such matters, no reticence in preferring claims and singing one's own praises. All that has gone by since our competitive examination has become the order of the day. No man, no woman, no girl, no boy, hesitates now to declare his or her own excellence and capability. It's just a short thing on social matters, said Mr. Molloy. And if you'll be so good as to cast your eye over it, I think you'll find I've hit the nail on the head. The five o'clock tea-table is what I've called it. Oh, the five o'clock tea-table. Don't you like the name? About social manners, is it? Just a rap on the knuckles for some of em, sharp, short, and decisive. I don't doubt but you like it. To declare, as though by instinct, that that was not the kind of thing we wanted, was as much a matter of course as it is for a man buying a horse to say that he does not like the brute's legs, or that he falls away in his quarters. And Mr. Molloy treated our objection just as does the horse-dealer, those of his customers. He assured us with a smile, with a smile behind which we could see the craving eagerness of his heart, that his little article was just the thing for us. Our immediate answer was, of course, ready. If he would leave the paper with us, we would look at it and return it if it did not seem to suit us. There is a half-promise about this reply which too often produces a false satisfaction in the breast of a beginner. With such a tone it is the second interview which is to be dreaded. But my friend Mr. Molloy was not new to the work, and was aware that if possible he should make further use of the occasion which he had earned for himself at so considerable a cost. "'You'll read it, will you?' he said. "'Oh, certainly. We'll read it, certainly.' "'And you'll use it if you can?' "'As to that, Mr. Molloy, we can say nothing. We've got to look solely to the interest of the periodical.' "'And sure, what can you do better for the periodical than print a paper like that, which there is not a lady at the west end of the town won't be certain to read?' At any rate, we'll look at it, Mr. Molloy. 
said we, standing up from our chair. But still he hesitated in his going, and did not go. I'm a married man, Mr. Blank, he said. We simply bowed our head at the announcement. I wish you could see Mrs. Malloy, he added. We murmured something as to the pleasure it would give us to make the acquaintance of so estimable a lady. "'There isn't a better woman than herself this side of heaven, though I say it that oughtn't,' said he. "'And we've three young ones.' We knew the argument that was coming, knew it so well, and yet were so unable to accept it as any argument. "'Sit down one moment, Mr. Blank,' he continued, "'till I tell you a short story.' We pleaded our engagements, averring that they were peculiarly heavy at that moment, "'Sure, and we knows what that means,' said Mr. Malloy. "'It's just, walk out of this as quick as you came in. "'It's that what it means.' And yet as he spoke there was a twinkle of humor in his eye that was almost irresistible. And we ourselves, we could not forbear to smile. When we smiled we knew that we were lost. "'Come now, Mr. Editor, when you think how much it cost me to get the introduction.' You'll listen to me for five minutes, anyway. We will listen to you, we said, resuming our chair, remembering as we did so the three and sixpence, the two cigars, the toquelon, the line from Pope, and the half-line from Horace. The man had taken much trouble with the view of placing himself where he now was. When we had been all but naked together, I had taken him to be the superior of the two, and what were we that we should refuse him an interview simply because he had wares to sell, which we should only be too willing to buy at his price if they were fit for our use? Then he told his tale. As for Paris, Constantinople, and New York, he frankly admitted that he knew nothing of those capitals. When we reminded him with some ill-nature, as we thought afterwards, that he had assumed an intimacy with the current literature of the three cities, he told us that such remarks were just the sparkling gems of conversation in which a man shouldn't expect to find real diamonds. Of Doblin he knew every street, every lane, every newspaper, every editor, but the poverty, dependence, and general poorness of a provincial press had crushed him and he had boldly resolved to try a fight in the metropolis of literature. He referred us to the managers of the Boyne Bouncer, of the Clontarf Chronicle, the Donnybrook Debater, and the Echoes of Erin, assuring us that we should find him to be as well esteemed as known in the offices of those widely circulated publications. His reading, he told us, was unbounded, and the pen was as ready to his hand as is the plough to the hand of the husbandman. Did we not think it a noble ambition in him thus to throw himself into the great Arrhenie, as he called it, and try his fortune in the metropolis of literature? He paused for a reply, and we were driven to acknowledge that whatever might be said of our friend's prudence, his courage was undoubted. I've got it here, said he. I've got it all here. And he touched his right breast with the fingers of his left hand, which still wore the tattered glove. He had succeeded in moving us. Mr. Malloy, we said, 
we'll read your paper, and we'll then do the best we can for you. We must tell you fairly that we hardly like your subject, but if the writing be good, you can try your hand at something else. Sure, there's nothing under the sun I wouldn't write about at your bidding. If we can be of service to you, Mr. Malloy, we will. Then the editor broke down, and the man spoke to the man. I need not tell you, Mr. Malloy, that the heart of one man of letters always warms to another. It was because I knew you was of that sort that I followed you in yonder, he said, with a tear in his eye. The butter-boat of benevolence was in our hand, and we proceeded to pour out its contents freely. It is a vessel which an editor should lock up carefully, and should he lose the key he will not be the worse for the loss. We need not repeat here all the pretty things that we said to him, explaining to him from a full heart with how much agony we were often compelled to resist the entreaties of literary suppliants, declaring to him how we had longed to publish tons of manuscript simply in order that we might give pleasure to those who brought them to us. We told him how accessible we were to a woman's tear, to a man's struggle, to a girl's face, and assured him of the daily wounds which were inflicted on ourselves by the impossibility of reconciling our duties with our sympathies. But that then, said Mr. Molloy, grasping our hand, you'll find none of that difficulty with me. If you'll sympathize like a man, I'll work for you like a horse. We assured him that we would, really thinking it probable that he might do some useful work for the magazine, and then we again stood up, waiting for his departure. Now I'll tell you a plain truth, said he, and you may do just as you please about it. There isn't an ounce of tay or a pound of mate along with Mrs. Molloy this moment, and what's more, there isn't a shilling between us to buy it. I never begged in my life, not yet, but if you can advance me a sovereign on that manuscript, it will save me from taking the coat on my back to a pawnbroker's shop for whatever it'll fetch there. We paused a moment as we thought of it all, and then we handed him the coin for which he asked us. If the manuscript should be worthless, the loss would be our own. We would not grudge a slice from the wholesome home-made loaf after we had used the butter-boat of benevolence. It don't become me, said Mr. Molloy, to thank you for such a thrifle as a loan of twenty shillings, but I'll never forget the feeling that has made you listen to me, and that too after I had been rather down on you at them baths. We gave him a kindly nod of the head, and then he took his departure. You'll see me again anyways, he said, and we promised that we would. We were anxious enough about the manuscript, but we could not examine it at that moment. When our office work was done, we walked home with the roll in our pocket, speculating as we went on the probable character of Mr. Molloy. We still believed in him, still believed in him in spite of the manner in which he had descended in his language, and had fallen into a natural flow of words which alone would not have given much promise of him as a man of letters. But a human being, in regard to his power of production, is the reverse of a rope. He is as strong as his strongest part, and remembering the effect which Molloy's words had had upon us at the Turkish bath, 
we still thought that there must be something in him. If so, how pleasant would it be to us to place such a man on his legs, modestly on his legs, so that he might earn for his wife in bairns that meat and tea which he had told us that they were now lacking. An editor is always striving to place someone modestly on his legs in literature, on his or her, striving, and alas, so often failing. Here had come a man in regard to whom, as I walked home with his manuscript in my pocket, I did feel rather sanguine. Of all the rubbish that I ever read in my life, that paper on the five o'clock tea-table was, I think, the worst. It was not only vulgar, foolish, unconnected, and meaningless, but it was also ungrammatical and unintelligible, even in regard to the wording of it. The very spelling was defective. The paper was one with which no editor, sub-editor, or reader would have found it necessary to go beyond the first ten lines, before he would have known that to print it would have been quite out of the question. We went through with it because of our interest in the man. But as it was in the beginning, so it was to the end. A farrago of wretched nonsense so bad that no one, without experience in such matters, would believe it possible that even the writer should desire the publication of it. It seemed to us to be impossible that Mr. Malloy should ever have written a word for those Hibernian periodicals which he had named to us. He had got our sovereign, and with that, as far as we were concerned, there must be an end of Mr. Malloy. We doubted even whether he would come for his own manuscript, but he came. He came exactly at the hour appointed, and when we looked at his face we felt convinced that he did not doubt his own success. There was an air of expectant triumph about him which dismayed us. It was clear enough that he was confident that he should take away with him the full price of his article, after deducting the sovereign which he had borrowed. "'You like it, then?' he said, before we had been able to compose our features to a proper form for the necessary announcement. "'Mr. Malloy,' we said, "'it will not do. You must believe us that it will not do.' "'Not do?' "'No, indeed. We need not explain further, but—but—you had really better turn your hand to some other occupation.' "'Some other occupation!' he exclaimed, opening wide his eyes and holding up both his hands. "'Indeed we think so, Mr. Malloy. "'And you've read it?' "'Every word of it, on our honor. "'And you won't have it?' "'Well, no. Mr. Malloy, certainly we cannot take it.' "'You reject my article and the five o'clock tea-table?' Looking into his face as he spoke, we could not but be certain that its rejection was to him as astonishing as would have been its acceptance to the readers of the magazine. He put his hand up to his head and stood wondering. "'I suppose you'd better choose your own subject for yourself,' he said, as though by this great surrender on his own part he was getting rid of all the difficulty on ours. "'Mr. Malloy,' we began, we may as well be candid with you. 
I'll tell you what it is, said he. I've taken such a liking to you, there's nothing I won't do to please you. I'll just put it in my pocket and begin another for you as soon as the children have had their bit of dinner. At last we did succeed, or thought that we succeeded, in making him understand that we regarded the case as being altogether hopeless, and were convinced that it was beyond his powers to serve us. "'And I'm to be turned off like that?' he said, bursting into open tears as he threw himself into a chair and hid his face upon the table. "'Ah, oh, where, where, what'll I do at all?' sure and didn't i think it was fixed as firm between us as the nelson monument when you handselled me with the money didn't i think it was as good as done and done i begged him not to regard the money assuring him that he was welcome to the sovereign there's my wife'll be brought to bed any day he went on to say and not a hapworth of anything ready for it deed then and the world's hard the world's very hard. And this was he who had talked to me about Constantinople and New York at the baths, and had made me believe that he was a well-informed, well-to-do man of the world? Even now we did not suspect that he was lying to us. Why he should be, such as he seemed to be, was a mystery, but even yet we believed in him after a fashion that he was sorely disappointed and broken-hearted because of his wife, was so evident to us that we offered him another sovereign, regarding it as the proper price of that butter-boat of benevolence which we had permitted ourselves to use. But he repudiated our offer. "'I've never begged,' said he, "'and for myself I'd sooner starve, and Mary Jane would sooner starve than I should beg.' It will be best for us both to put an end to ourselves and to have done with it. This was very melancholy. And as he lay with his hand upon the table, we did not see how we were to induce him to leave us. You'd better take the sovereign, just for the present, we said. Never, said he, looking up for a moment. Never! And still he continued to sob. About this period of the interview which before it was ended was a very long interview, we ourselves made a suggestion, the imprudence of which we afterwards acknowledged to ourselves. We offered to go to his lodgings and see his wife and children. Though the man could not write a good magazine article, yet he might be a very fitting object for our own personal kindness. And the more we saw of the man, the more we liked him, in spite of his incapacity. The place is so poor, he said, objecting to our offer. After what had passed between us, we felt that that could be no reason against our visit, and we began for a moment to fear that he was deceiving us. Not yet, he cried, not quite yet. I will try once again, once again. You will let me see you once more? And you will take the other sovereign, we said, trying him. He should have had the other sovereign if he would have taken it, but we confessed that had he done so, then we should have regarded him as an impostor. But he did not take it, and left us in utter ignorance as to his true character. After an interval of three days he came again, and there was exactly the same appearance. He wore the same tattered gloves. He had not pawned his coat. There was the same hat. 
shabby when observed closely, but still carrying a decent appearance when not minutely examined. In his face there was no sign of want, and at moments there was a cheeriness about him which was almost refreshing. "'I've got a something this time that I think you must like, unless you're harder to plays than Radamanthus." So saying, he tendered me another roll of paper, which I at once opened, intending to read the first page of it. The essay was entitled, The Church of England, A Question for the People. It was handed to me as having been written within the last three days, and from its bulk might have afforded fair work for a fortnight to a writer accustomed to treat of subjects of such weight. As we had expected, the first page was unintelligible, absurd, and farcical. We began to be angry with ourselves for having placed ourselves in such a connection with a man so utterly unable to do that which he pretended to do. "'I think I've hit it off now,' said he, watching our face as we were reading. The reader need not be troubled with a minute narrative of the circumstances as they occurred during the remainder of the interview. What had happened before was repeated very closely. He wondered, he remonstrated, he complained, and he wept. He talked of his wife and family, and talked as though up to this last moment he had felt confident of success. Judging from his face as he entered the room, we did not doubt but that he had been confident. His subsequent despair was unbounded, and we then renewed our offer to call on his wife. After some hesitation he gave us an address in Hoxton, begging us to come after seven in the evening if it were possible. He again declined the offer of money, and left us, understanding that we would visit his wife on the following evening. "'You're quite sure about the manuscript,' said he, as he left us. We replied that we were quite sure. On the following day we dined early at our club, and walked in the evening to the address which Mr. Malloy had given us in Hoxton. It was a fine evening in August, and our walk made us very warm. The street named was a decent little street, decent as far as cleanliness and newness could make it, but there was a melancholy sameness about it, and an apparent absence of object which would have been very depressing to our spirits. It led no whither and had been erected solely with the view of accommodating decent people with small incomes. We at once priced the houses in our mind at ten and sixpence a week, and believed them to be inhabited by pianoforte tuners, coach-builders, firemen, and public office messengers. There was no squalor about the place, but it was melancholy, light-colored, and depressive. We made our way to number fourteen and finding the door open, entered the passage. "'Come in!' cried the voice of our friend, and in the little front parlor we found him seated with a child on each knee, while a winning little girl of about twelve was sitting in a corner of the room, mending her stockings. The room itself and the appearance of all around us were the very opposite of what we had expected. Everything, no doubt, was plain, was in a certain sense poor but nothing was poverty-stricken. The children were decently clothed, and apparently were well fed. Mr. Malloy himself, when he saw me, had that twinkle of humor in his eye which I had before observed, 
and seemed to be afflicted at the present moment with none of that extreme agony which he had exhibited more than once in our presence. "'Please, sir, mother ain't in from the hospital, not yet,' said the little girl, rising up from her chair. "'But it's past seven, and she won't be long.' This announcement created some surprise. We had indeed heard that of Mrs. Malloy which might make it very expedient that she should seek the accommodation of an hospital, but we could not understand that in such circumstances she should be able to come home regularly at seven o'clock in the evening. Then there was a twinkle in our friend Malloy's eye which almost made us think for the moment that we had been made the subject of some hitherto unintelligible hoax and yet there had been the man at the baths in german street and the two manuscripts had been in our hands and the man had wept as no man weeps for a joke you would come you know said mr malloy who had now put down the two bairns and had risen from his seat to greet us we are glad to see you so comfortable we replied father is quite comfortable sir said the little girl we looked into Mr. Molloy's face and saw nothing but the twinkle in the eye. We had certainly been done by the most elaborate hoax that had ever been perpetrated. We did not regret the sovereign so much as those outpourings from the butterboat of benevolence, of which we felt that we had been cheated. "'Here's mother,' said the girl, running to the door. Mr. Molloy stood grinning in the middle of the room with the youngest child again in his arms. He did not seem to be in the least ashamed of what he had done, and even at that moment conveyed to us more of liking for his affection for the little boy than of anger for the abominable prank that he had played on us. That he had lied throughout was evident as soon as we saw Mrs. Molloy. Whatever ailment might have made it necessary that she should visit the hospital, it was not one which could interfere at all with her power of going and returning. She was a strong, hardy-looking woman of about forty, with that mixture in her face of practical kindness with severity and details which we often see in strong-minded women who are forced to take upon themselves the management and government of those around them. She curtsied, and took off her bonnet and shawl, and put a bottle into a cupboard as she addressed us. Mick said as you was coming, sir, and I'm sure we is glad to see you, only sorry for the trouble, sir. We were so completely in the dark that we hardly knew how to be civil to her. Hardly knew whether we ought to be civil to her or not. We don't quite understand why we've been brought here, we said, endeavoring to maintain at any rate a tone of good humor. He was still embracing the little boy, but there had now come a gleam of fun across his whole countenance, and he seemed to be almost shaking his sides with laughter. "'Your husband represented himself as being in distress,' we said gravely. We were restrained by a certain delicacy from informing the woman of the kind of distress to which Mr. Molloy had especially alluded most falsely. "'Lord, love you, sir,' said the woman. "'Just step in here.' Then she led us into a little back room in which there was a bedstead and an old writing-desk or escritoire covered with papers. Her story was soon told. Her husband was a madman.' 
Mad? we said, preparing for escape from what might be to us most serious peril. He wouldn't hurt a mouse, said Mrs. Molloy. As for the children, he's that good to them, there ain't a young woman in all London that'd be better at handling em. Then we heard her story, in which it appeared to us that downright affection for the man was the predominant characteristic. She herself was, as she told us, head-day nurse at St. Patrick's Hospital, going there every morning at eight and remaining till six or seven. For these services she received thirty shillings a week and her board, and she spoke of herself and her husband as being altogether removed from pecuniary distress. Indeed, while the money part of the question was being discussed, she opened a little drawer in the desk and handed us back our sovereign, almost without an observation. Molloy himself had come of decent people. On this point she insisted very often, and gave us to understand that he was at this moment in receipt of a pension of a hundred a year from his family. He had been well educated, she said, having been at Trinity College, Dublin, till he had been forced to leave his university for some slight but repeated irregularity. Early in life he had proclaimed his passion for the press, and when he and she were married absolutely was earning a living in Dublin by some use of the scissors and paste-pot. The whole tenor of his career I could not learn, though Mrs. Molloy would have told us everything had time allowed. Even during the years of his sanity in Dublin he had only been half-sane, treating all the world around him with the effusions of his terribly fertile pen. He'll write all night if I'll let him have a candle, said Mrs. Molloy. We asked her why she did let him have a candle, and made some inquiry as to the family expenditure in paper. The paper, she said, was given to him from the office of a newspaper, which she would not name, and which Molloy visited regularly every day. There ain't a man in all London works harder, said Mrs. Molloy. He is mad, I don't say nothing against it. But there is some of it so beautiful, I wonder they don't print it. This was the only word she spoke with which we could not agree. Ah, sir, said she, you haven't seen his poetry. We were obliged to tell her that seeing poetry was the bane of our existence. There was an easy absence of sham about this woman, and an acceptance of life as it had come to her, which delighted us. She complained of nothing, and was only anxious to explain the little eccentricities of her husband. When we alluded to some of his marvelously untrue assertions, she stopped us at once. "'He do lie,' she said. "'Certainly he do. How he makes them all out is wonderful. But he wouldn't hurt a fly.' It was evident to us that she not only loved her husband, but admired him. She showed us heaps of manuscript with which the old drawers were crammed, and yet that paper on the Church of England had been new work done expressly for us. When the story had been told, we went back to him, and he received us with a smile. "'Good-bye, Molloy,' we said. "'Good-bye to you, sir,' he replied, shaking hands with us. We looked at him closely, and could hardly believe that it was the man who had sat by us at the Turkish bath. He never troubled us again, or came to our office, 
but we have often called on him and have found that others of our class do the same we have even helped to supply him with the paper which he continues to use we presume for the benefit of other editors end of section two end of the turkish bath recording by arnold banner thurmond north carolina